Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hello, O'Toole. Hey there, Hollister. I know, today our two big ones are East Side Sushi and Crisis in Six Scenes. But before we get there, <laughs> I, know, I, I know you're not going to believe this, but I continued my total obsession with the new shows coming out this year. Now, you managed to do that and go to all the dinner parties well, you had to I make did. up. Not only that, I hosted a dinner party, but I couldn't wow. wait for them to leave so I could watch <laughs> did you Crisis shoot in them out I a will, control in your hand? I did keep, keep saying, gosh, it's getting late, and no one seemed to <laughs> listen. But anyway, um, Designated Survivor, have you heard about it? Is that the one with Kiefer Sutherland? Yes! Where he's back in the White yes! House? Yes! But he's there for longer than 24 hours? Hello. Hi, Daddy. Who is this? Your daughter? No, that's not possible. My daughter's asleep, and I know that because I kissed her goodnight almost two hours ago. When are you and Mommy coming home? There are times when we make history. It doesn't matter. You're going to be asleep by then, right? And there are times when history makes us. Good night, Daddy. To <laughs> ensure you that the same American dream shared by our fathers, our mothers, weird. Yeah. Or is just one black too? Secretary, you need to put the phone down. Mike, what the hell is going on? I said put the phone down. Is this some kind of explosion? It's ABC. It's also on Hulu, if you prefer Hulu. Uh, but the premise of it is, whenever the um, the state of uh, the state of the, of the I always call it the state of the union. Whenever the <laughs> state of the union address is going on, there's always one cabinet member who stays behind, and he's the designated quote survivor. Oh. So if they blow up the Capitol uh, in that moment in time, then there is somebody to run the government. So Kiefer Sutherland is the um, on the cabinet, he's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and of course they blow up the Capitol. Oh dear! And he had just been fired that morning. Wow! So yeah, the president had already asked for his resignation, and the Capitol's blown up, and it is so good. Oh my wow. gosh, it's so good! You definitely have to pick it up. I'm assuming he was the designated survivor before he was asked for his resignation. Well, the resignation hadn't happened yet, so mm -hmm. clearly he was picked to be designated survivor. Because the the president didn't like him anymore and didn't care that he wasn't going to be there that night as he gave the speech. And then all of a sudden he's head of the government. And it turns out Congress also left someone behind. And the congressional woman um, from the other party, she's a Republican, um, she shows up too. So there's sort of the two of them out there. It's so packed with really interesting premises and action and the acting is really good and I highly highly recommend it I really do okay and then the second thing that I wanted to say and now I, I might be doing something on my top 10 for this fall season is uh, Queen Sugar from OWN oh. uh, okay I have never really loved some of the the work that she's put on OWN especially in the narrative section I just haven't I haven't been a huge fan but we're talking now about um, Ava DuVernay who directed Selma. Selma and not only that you know she has a female distribution company wow. for films and it's called Array and she cha she's championing films um, by people of color it's a story of um, of three siblings who have very different lives one is an ex-con one is married to a very multi-cajillionaire 
basketball player who gets in a little bit of trouble. I won't talk about that. So the premise is based on uh, Natalie Bazile's book. Do you know about that book? I have Queen not Sugar. read it. Yeah, no. it's really well done, and maybe it's because it's DuVernay. You know, I read the most interesting interview with Oprah recently okay. about her own network and how now it's finally turning a profit. And she said two things that were really interesting. She said, of course, she thought it would be easier. And when she first came up with the idea of starting her own network, Lorne Michaels told her that the learning curve would be so steep and it would take her five years to get it and up and running. how long has it been? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. And he said, you've got no idea what you're getting <laughs> yeah. yourself into. And now it's been five, five years. years. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, she gave that wonderful uh, commencement address at Harvard two years ago. Where she wore a crimson dress. She did, but she also was so excited to be at Harvard, as she called it. <laughs> And she she had just turned she had just turned the corner from everybody saying it was a total disaster at that point. So, so you know the other thing she said that was really interesting. She said when she first started out with her program on TV, she had a huge following, but it was a morning show. It came on at like nine a.m. Yeah, and it was doing so well. The network decided to bump it up to four p.m., which was more prestigious at the time. And she thought everybody would follow her. And she said, of course, people who are available at 9 a.m. aren't necessarily available at 4 p.m., so she had to start from scratch. And she said the same thing when she started OWN. She thought, I've got all these people watching my show every Uh day. They'll follow me. Right. And then most of them didn't get the network. Well, I was going to say, the reason they couldn't follow her is it was really hard to get that network. So many plans, basic plans didn't carry OWN. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, their negotiation on that somehow I think was a mistake at that time. Okay, now we should talk about our movies. (laughs) Should we start with um, Eastside Sushi? I knew it. This is because I'm a woman. You know I can do this job just as good as any man. You want to become sushi chef? You go try another restaurant. Not here. It is not a job for you. Tell me, how did you hear about Eastside okay. Sushi? I came across it on iTunes, but I had read something about it. It won 13 festivals, and it was touted as one of the most overlooked films by the LA Times from 2014. Eastside Sushi. So I happened to like sushi, and it just looked like an interesting entree, so I watched it. Um, and then, you know, did you know you? I then I called and said, "Could we please do this? I really, you know." And I know you're not a huge sushi sushi lover, but I do like sushi. Do you? Yeah, yeah I do. I know you're on a sushi kick. I though, am. Lately yeah, all the time. You all just the time. wrote up that documentary, Jiro. I did. Yeah. 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 So another sushi movie. Exactly. I thought Eastside Sushi was like an indie version of a hundred foot journey. Where it's a bicultural foodie movie. Well, that's why, but I'm so glad that you picked that up first, too, because for me, I loved the biculture of it and fighting to get in. You know, there was gender issues, you know, and it's funny because the writer and the director, he said that um, it's a movie about rejections and coming back from them. So this is Anthony Lucero. Yes. And did you feel that the, the culture is really intermeshed really well? Well, it's funny. Okay, first, I will admit, I assumed it took place in New York City. So from the name Eastside Sushi... Um, the neighborhoods were so L.A., right, from the beginning, though. You didn't see that on... Just the... from the title. So before I started oh, watching, oh, gotcha, when, gotcha. I, when I heard okay. Eastside, because New York, it's one of the things that I just love about it, is not only can you get any kind of cuisine on this planet, but I have been to Chinese restaurants run by Mexican families, and I've been to Mexican restaurants <laughs> run by not, Chinese actually. families. I don't think I have, I've yeah. been to kosher Dunkin' Donuts, you know. So I did like that. I particularly liked it when she was speaking Spanish with her family and the chefs were speaking Japanese. Not that all the chefs were Japanese, but the minute they switched over to English, it seemed a little more stilted to me. Huh. 
contestants. Remember to put your hands up when you are done. I, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't experience it that way. But to me, it um, seemed that same way. You know how in certain countries like Germany, they dub everything into German, and I've often thought, I wonder what that would feel like to my ear if it were done into American I don't like dubbing. English. I'm not a dubber lover. Well, it happens so rarely that yeah. we do it. We usually just go for the subtitles. Yeah. But every now and then, late night, you might find an Asian film that's been dubbed mm-hmm. into English, and to me. It was like that on a smaller scale when they switched over to English. Mm. I much preferred to hear them speaking Spanish. Now, have you seen the the protagonist in anything else? No. I thought she was excellent. Did you think she was good? I thought she was good. I loved the girl who played her daughter. What is it? That's what they call Suchi. Excellent. And her father was a good oh character. Oh my gosh, wasn't he compelling? And he did was your, very compelling. You know, hashtag hurt your heart once oh. again. You know, those kinds of characters hurt my heart. Those people who have worked so hard and somehow just didn't quite didn't quite get it there, you know. Well, it, even when the father says to his daughter, everyone knows how to make rice. Your own daughter knows how to make rice. And the little girl goes, I don't know how to make <laughs> rice. <laughs> she was so just forthright about it or even when the mother comes home from her new job and she's trying to make sushi and her rice is not sticking and she didn't know her rice was too old to use it for sushi and the little girl's waiting for her dinner and just lets her head drop on the table she's so hungry i thought she was a cute little kid well just watching how it's all made too was really wonderful and the in the precision that's around it and it's funny i i um I go. I have sushi food at least once or twice a week, and I always order in on Cape Cod. I eat at a place called Idaho, which is on Six A, and it's very hard to get into. It's one of those kind of places. But anyway, I always order salmon don, which is um, sticky rice and then raw salmon sliced over, and then all kinds of pickled vegetables and things. It's really delicious. And when I went to pick it up this week, she said it's almost ready and I could see that it wasn't and I sort of looked at her quizzically because they're very good about having everything ready and she said chef didn't want to slice the salmon until you arrived see that's nice and I watched him slice thinly slice the raw salmon put it on and then you know snap it shut smile at me and I said thank you you know because what you know they there's great honor in in creating sushi in that instant moment is very very important but did you give him any sake uh, no, they don't do that. Where I've never seen I, that done before. I've never seen it either. Yeah. And I thought those chefs must be drinking a lot of sake. Well, she's referring to the point where if you really enjoy the way your your sushi's been prepared, you they the chef has a sake glass and you can offer him or her. It's not her actually, but you can offer them a little bit of sake. But I also wanted to say that Anthony Lucero he talked about how he came up with the idea, and he said that he was in a sushi restaurant and he was watching them make it, and all of a sudden it occurred to him that it's always male Japanese men making the sushi and then he saw um, a Latino um, gentleman working behind in the kitchen mm-hmm. and then he thought gosh I wonder what it would be like if that Latino person wanted to become a sushi chef and that's how it all progressed and then what and so he made the the character Juan and then 30 pages into it he decided no Juan's going to be Juana you know mm-hmm. so he so he changed it to a female protagonist and, and I think it's all the better for it. Well, yeah. they made it clear in the movie that they didn't want to hire her not because she wasn't Japanese, mm-hmm. because some of the other chefs were from China and other places, right. but because she was female. Right. Now, also, Anthony Lucicera, um, he's had a huge career in visual effects. He was an editor of The Hunger Games. I mean, really? some major... Yeah, I looked him up and I was like, so he... 
he had always, you know, this is, goes to show that the film industry is so difficult to break into that you'll take whatever job you can. But he did visual oh, effects in some... That's a pretty esteemed job. Well, it is a very esteemed job, but it's not directing and writing your own films, you know. So yeah, special effects. Yeah, that's a so very when special he, skill And set. when he did this and he got the money to go ahead and produce it and put it out there, he quit his job, so he hasn't done anything but this. But I think he's a good filmmaker and I think he's a good storyteller. Do and you? this movie had no special effects. None. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, it's not know. like, you know, I mean, he really came from that other side of the coin, so to speak. So, I, you know, I, I really loved the film. I thought it was wonderful. Well, <clears throat> these were my favorite lines. Okay. When she goes for the job interview, uh-huh. and the woman interviewing her says, we don't hire many people to work in the kitchen. Because at this point, they don't even envision her being a sushi chef. She's interviewing to work in the back of the kitchen. And the woman says, you have to lift bags of rice that are 50 pounds. And she says, my daughter is 52 pounds. Yeah. And then when she shows up at work and she asks if she could bring her own knives. You're a woman. Why would you want to work up here? See? The most heartfelt moment. I'm trying to have an opportunity like everyone else. I deserve an opportunity like everyone else. And when she said, there are Latinos in every kitchen making the rest of you look wonderful. good. You're not upholding a tradition, you're upholding an illusion. I thought that was a powerful line. Most poignant moment for sure, and how great that he was able to bring that. That's what I mean, there were so many wonderful lessons in there about it. You know, there really were. The other thing he said in one of the interviews I read about him, he said that he's all yeah, everybody always gives the advice write about what you know, like write a movie about what you know and um, he said, I write movies about what I don't know because it's much more interesting to tell somebody else's story rather than my own. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really sort of a unique point of view. Now, you having been in film, do you think he's right or do you think well, he's it wrong? it all goes to the question of what is it that he knows or doesn't know because does he mean what it's like to prepare sushi? Does he mean what it's like to be a He doesn't know anything about Mexican? what he was right, yeah. Or maybe he knows what it's like to have a job you really, really want, like being a writer and director, and what they're offering him is special effects. Well, what he said was he knows nothing about Japanese sushi or how to make it or how you become a chef, and he knows nothing about being a woman. And so by writing it from the totally from the woman's point of view, he was to- absolutely in an area with no knowledge. And yet I can see the pluses of that, because then when you're already cognizant that you don't know anything about it, you like, right. Well, it's, it, you know, I love that the L.A. Times said it was one of the, you know, one of the overlooked films. It won 13 festivals. When you look at the... Um, when you look at the poster for it and you see the 13 laurels at the bottom, it's like, oh my goodness, whoever saw anything like this. So I do think that it was it was heralded by people who saw it. And he said he couldn't believe it. He would go to these festivals and he saw so many flaws and people would stand up and, and cheer at the end. And he said he was so touched and moved because all he saw was a flawed movie. He saw said he mm-hmm. saw all the mistakes he'd made. And where, but people who see it really, really liked it. And I'm certainly one of those people who saw it and really, really liked it. So, all right. Well, now Woody Allen again, he's crossed our threshold so many times this year, don't you think? And this is his first foray into television. Riots broke out on college campuses protesting the Vietnam War and the present administration's policies. You know, our friend's kids wanted us to go and demonstrate in Washington last week. I would have gone. Yeah, yeah, forget it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm allergic to tear gas. And it's called uh, Crisis in Six Scenes, and Amazon did it. 
And I'm going to open with something that one of the reviewers said is, it's a Woody Allen movie that he cut up into six different sections. I was going to say the same thing. Even right there in the title, Crisis in Six Scenes. Because when I first read that Woody Allen was going to do TV, I was picturing episodic television. And I thought that's a very different skill set. It's a very different production schedule. That's absolutely the case. This is a two-hour movie broken up into six segments, knowing that they're all going to drop at the same time, knowing you can hit play all... You know, one just leads right into the next. Okay, but the, everybody's saying that. Do you see that as a criticism? Because no. I, I see that as a, who cares? You right. know, he gets to do That's whatever the way, way he we wants. watch TV now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just sort of that moment in this golden age of television that we always talk about. Maybe this is that moment where that's okay you know each segment that was barely 20 minutes long well they were very short segments Mm -hmm. and i will tell you i started laughing from you know what is there i you know i i actually wrote it down so i love watching woody allen play himself Mm -hmm. totally himself at the age that he is 80 when did woody allen turn 80 and why do I find him so funny? Why, 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 why? Why is that character? I never stop laughing from beginning to end. You know, it is so funny that you oh say that. Oh, my gosh. I thought the pacing really picked up the way it should so that you reach a comedic climax. So the first episode is probably the slowest, you know, although it's only 20 minutes long. But it long. still had so many funny lines that you couldn't did, stop laughing. It did for sure. And just like you, I so enjoyed watching Woody Allen being Woody Allen because we reviewed Cafe Society yes, recently. Yes, exactly. And neither one of us was enamored with Jesse Eisenberg. So, of course, this is vintage Woody with everybody doing the but requisite hand wringing. He is the primary this character, and he hasn't be, done this in a long time. It might be the funniest I've ever uh, found I him. Never could stop laughing, and I thought, I haven't seen him at be the primary you know, character in, in yes. one of his... Plots. Now, well, I, I just, liked his walk. I thought oh, his walk was funny. Watching him, I thought he was like a Muppet. Oh. And I, the number of funny facial expressions he came up with. But it's the lines. Oh, my the God. Lines it's are the great. lines. Let me just give you a couple. Okay. She, do you have a couple, too? I do. Okay, I'm, good. I'm more so, than a couple, but right, I stopped yeah, but writing let's them just down go, Let's go through. She's a fugitive. A fugitive is eating our chicken. I laughed out loud when I heard oh, that. I don't even God. like chicken, and I laughed when he delivered that Okay, line. you give me one of yours. Okay, um, when they're supposed to jump from rooftop to rooftop in this cave. I wrote that one down. Elaine May says, jump, and he goes, jump. I never jump anywhere where there's gravity. Well, she's laughing, so you might not have heard her. The line was, I never jump anywhere where there's gravity, and I had to stop the show to write it down to laugh out loud, okay? And then they're hiding this this fugitive, and he says, I don't care if her family hit Anne Frank. <laughs> because the, his wife was saying he's, she's so close to the family and how could she not hide this girl? And he's like, I don't care if that family hit Anne Frank. And we have to say, Miley Cyrus played that fugitive and seeing Woody Allen stuff Miley Cyrus into the trunk of a car was worth the price of admission. But who was the star? Who who was the breakout person that who's, who perfectly juxtaposition with him her timing was impeccable. The way she walked was hysterical. Are you talking about Elaine May? Yes. Okay, I don't think we can call her a breakout star. No, in this movie, what I mean she is... She was yeah, the perfect exactly. foil there were, you to know, his Woody Allen. Ex- oh, my when God. When she wakes him up in the middle of the night, and he hasn't put his hearing aids in, <laughs> and she's like, someone's broken in downstairs. 
And he goes, I don't hear a thing. And she's like, put your hearing aid in. When they are tiptoeing down the steps, she's leading the way because, of course, first she had to stop to brush her hair. Ugh. They both have a fire poker. And he goes, okay, the important thing is do not resist. If they ask for your jewelry, give it to them. And she turns, she goes, you never gave me any jewelry. <laughs> uh, you know what? I missed that. I was probably writing down something else. I, I totally missed that one. And then she one. goes, well, except for that one emerald. He goes, it was fake. She's like, the emerald was fake? And he goes, yeah, but it was a good fake. I mean, you couldn't tell. And she's like, I showed it to all my friends. They're stopping to have this marital spat. Now, I will, I'm going to go over a couple things because I think it sort of addresses um, some of the criticism. A lot of the critics said he was lazy in this. In okay, and that he would just write funny scenes and then intertwine them together, like he didn't really plot plan or whatever. But anyway, I'm I don't okay agree. I don't that. agree with them either. But let's just just put that out there. But now the opening scene footage, I, I'm like, I've seen this before. Where have I seen mm-hmm. this before? And I get obsessed with that, and I can't let it go. And I kept thinking, 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 and then. I realize it takes place in the 60s. Right. It's footage from the 60s. It's Mm -hmm. actual footage. But I thought, I've seen this footage somewhere before, and you know where it was? Did you see the movie Copycat? No, I never saw it. Okay. It's a great film, actually, coupling Holly Hunter, Sigourney Weaver, and um, Dermot... um, Mulroney. Mulroney. Yeah. Thank you for helping me. Who can really play the cello. I just read this about him on Mozart in the Jungle. He did his own cello thing. Yeah, exactly. Now... That film, I think, is a great, scary film. It's about a, um, a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sigourney, anyway, it opens with the same footage. He copied footage from Copycat? Well, I don't think he copied it from Copycat. I think he went to 60s footage. but they, And they, were ta- um, they did the same the thing. They took real database. archived mm-hmm. archived footage. So, so that opening was there. And then... And after we did Good Girls Revolt last week, I thought we're back in the 60s. And then what about the ther- the first two therapist scenes where they're, they're talking to each other? That's right out of... Well, it was out of a prior Woody Allen movie. Everyone but, says, I love you. He's always got the marriage but therapist. It's all, you know, but it was set up exactly like When Harry Met Sally. It was very When Harry it Met was Sally. Very when Harry met Sally Mm -hmm. and then I thought well maybe that's why they think he's being lazy is because he's using things that other people have used so successfully in the past but god I think they meshed well together all of them the marriage counseling with Tony winner (laughs) Nina Arianda who had a bit part in Midnight in Paris where her husband wants to sleep with hookers and so Elaine may suggest well why don't you just pay your wife for sex no even better was the first one what marital difficulties bring you here today? I can't stand his snoring. I hate her laugh. I mean things that you agree on? Neither one of us likes guacamole. Okay, that's the beginning. We can build on guacamole. And I, I just burst out laughing. There's just so many moments that you know he must have pulled and called from his life or what he's seen in his life or what he thinks he's seen in his life. He is a genius at bringing out the comedy in the tragedy of our lives. I, there were definitely the typical Woody oh Allen things, God. fear of death. Best. You know, should he... Best in 10 years. Should he pray just in case there is a God? But I enjoyed it more than Cafe Society. Um, another now, wait, here's line. the thing, O'Toole. I thought, you, I, thought I was going to be fighting you fighting with you from the beginning to the end of this. I did too. And even watching episode one, I was like, okay, this was a slow burn for me, but I really applaud him that by episode six, 
it peaked exactly where it should have, where everybody gathered on stage. So you had her marital counseling uh, patients, the book club, the in laws to be. When that book club first enters this show, uh-huh. and they walk in, one after, he's standing there watching them walk in, one after the other, side views of these people walking in like lambs to a slaughter, and it is so oh, funny, you are rolling on the floor. I thought, brilliant, I brilliant, wished brilliant. I could have been on the casting mm. calls for the members of that that book club, and then I see Joy Behar is part of the book club. Well, I didn't pick up right away, did you? Yes, Took me I a minute. Did. Took me a I minute. I did, and do you know she's now 73? She's given my book club some very interesting things to read. We should go into town and lie down in front of the entrance of the local draft board. We'll bring a quart of pig's blood. How about next Saturday? Oh, I can't. We have a bomisva. Oh, yeah. I, I have to confess something. Okay. It's uh, not a biggie, but Wait, it's but a by the way, one. you never confess things. So let's everybody take a moment, take pause here, because O'Toole is confessing something. This is the first thing I've ever seen Elaine May do. Really? What yes. else has she been in? Okay, she's written quite a few movies. You know what? I've never seen her. Maybe that's why I thought she was more of a breakout star. Well, yeah. she hasn't been in as many things as you would think, because she did, of course, she toured early on with Mike Nichols. Mm-hmm. They were the comedic duo, so I missed that. Oh, that's who she is. Yep. Right, right, right. And then she did a lot of theater, uh-huh. and I missed that. She wrote The Heartbreak Kid, which I have never seen. It's a great movie. And this is a but little shout-out. But test, it, doesn't, it doesn't pass the test of time, The Heartbreak Kid. But you know what? This is our little shout-out to Val. Val, who's been posting trivia on uh-huh. our Facebook page. Yeah, which you got, and I didn't. Well, Thank the God it came in after you. Was, it was which, so hard. Which mother-daughter duo were ever nominated for Oscars for the same movie? I, I, I'm like, why would I know that? I have no idea. <laughs> Rambling Rose, Diane Ladd, I did Laura think of, Dern. I did think of the Hudsons. But okay, now yeah. this is to answer the trivia question that I posed to Val. Which mother has ever directed a movie for which her daughter was nominated for an Oscar for being in that movie? I don't know. Elaine May. Uh-huh. In The Heartbreak Kid, her daughter, Jeannie Berlin, was nominated for an Oscar for The Heartbreak Kid. And do you know where you last saw Jeannie Berlin? No. In Cafe Society. She played huh. Rose. Huh. Well, all the one I can tell so much. She yeah, looks just I loved like her. Lee May. But I, I, I think she. I think it's an Academy Award or Emmy. It would be an Emmy, not an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. I think it's an Emmy performance. I think it's unbelievably great. Okay. Do you know what else Elaine May has written? No. You you love this movie, The Birdcage. Oh, I think that's one of the best movies ever written. She was nominated for two Oscars for Best Adapted yeah, Screenplay. Very well done. Primary Colors and. Heaven Can Wait okay, with well, Warren Beatty. You know, go you go, Elaine. And how great that you can get a part like this to be in front of the camera. You were a genius in this show. Absolutely. They were a great pair. Oh, fabulous Especially together. episodes two through six. <clears throat> but do you know the last thing Elaine May directed? No. Ishtar. Huh. Yes. I had no idea she directed Ishtar. Well, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't know she directed anything. Yeah, Heartbreak Kid. Do you think she practiced that walk? Both of them, their walks. They both had fantastic walks. And when when he goes over to... (laughs) There's a scene in there. We can't give it all away. We're practically telling you the whole thing. Our retelling is going to take longer than actually just watching it. Right, but but um, he goes over to a telephone booth. And the telephone booth scene... You cannot stop laughing. Great casting. Perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Just long enough, not too long. And the woman that he puts into the into the um, 
telephone booth is stellar. She's so much bigger so than him. Good. You know, uh, it's just he just he's just a master. It's very self-deprecating. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was very smart to set it in the '60s. I just assumed when he was doing television, it would be current day. But it was so smart because he could use all his vintage touches, like having a phone booth scene. Watching a Woody Allen thing with cell phones would just be all wrong. Well, and it would definitely not be him and, his, mm. you know, his whole thing. It was a very appropriate throwback. Okay, there was one thing, though. Their house was way too waspy for him to be in. <laughs> you know, the 1960s furniture cracked me up. Though. Well, I know, but it, you know, it was you know, I think it should have been like a beautiful brownstone in Brooklyn or something, you know. And then you know the avatarness of D. H. Salinger, which we won't give away, but mm-hmm. you know, unbelievably brilliant on his part, and also you, he he's vulnerable on this show. He is. He is. He's showing that he wishes he was a Salinger writer. You know, mm-hmm. he shows a piece of himself. That, you know, he doesn't generally let the public in and nobody can blame him because the public's not always been that nice to him, right? So I think he really showed pieces of himself that were not neurotically funny, but they were also looking back on his career and making statements about it. And I think that's a great thing. I agree. And he did something that was Seinfeld-esque where the plot is the plot. So when it opens, you realize he's on the verge of selling a TV series. He works that into Crisis and Sixteen. I'm working on an idea for a television series now. Oh, I see. The usual dysfunctional family with the wisecracking wife and kids and much harassed husband kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, he, yeah. And he's written a bunch of advertised, you know, he's written a bunch of ads. Mm-hmm. Now the and the and then he talks about <laughs> somebody asks him about something and he says, Well, I wrote the Stillman orthopedic ice cream ad. <laughs> And then, and then he explains that it wasn't orthopedic ice cream until he made it that because he knew that it would take off that way, which it did. I mean, where does he come up with this stuff? It's just great. Just the fact Hysterical. that the inciting incident is hearing this burglar. I thought this is so funny. The last person on the planet I would send downstairs to investigate whether someone has broken into my home is Woody Allen. I mean, if that is your little security guard, God help us all. Well, then she tells him, if there's someone down there, just come back upstairs. <laughs> okay, I'll be doing and that. And I swear he's been wearing those same mustard-colored corduroys <laughs> for decades and now. his coat and his hat and the it's two of them standing clothes. on this corner yeah. in Brooklyn. You can say just wanted wardrobe. to die. But okay, you know, I'm going to go ahead. as it was, I thought it had some themes from the 60s that completely resonate today with the Occupy Wall Street movements and a big discussion on capitalism. Yeah. Oh, God! Don't you think America has somehow lost its way? Yes, uh, maybe. No, it wasn't a discussion. It was an editorial about capitalism. I thought it was equally weighted on both sides. Yeah, I didn't hear I didn't hear the side for capitalism. Well, I don't think Woody Allen was writing this series as a nonprofit venture. No, not at all. But I will also say though that it was more edi- you know, he does edit- editorialize. He had, you know, he judges people and excluding himself. And he gets away with it because he's always putting himself in there and judging himself most harshly of all. But but even when he's having the conversation yeah. with Miley Cyrus, I really enjoy their scenes together. When she said sports, oh, that's just another opium for the people. And he says, hey, your crowd thinks opium should be the opium of the people. It was funny, but he was also touching on some yeah, big no, ex- Excellent point. To, that's a great juxtaposition, too, of the thing that would bring that up. Okay, she was really good. That girl can act. It was a good use yep. of Miley uh-huh. Cyrus. Exactly. If you need an angry revolutionary from the 60s, you know, who you want to stuff in a trunk, get Miley Cyrus. I don't dislike you. It's just 
everything that you stand for. I would admit it's been exciting. I'm going to leave you with uh, my favorite. Um, okay, that Chairman Mao, uh, his wife's talking about Chairman Mao, and he says, oh, yeah, Chairman Mao, one of the few overweight Chinese. <laughs> you know, like, I, he just came up with these obscure things that you just could not stop laughing at. It was just so See, funny. You were very amused by the politically incorrect tiptoeing well, jokes. But, uh, but I think it was to everyone, including himself, mm-hmm. so he can do it. In he other words, you really can, Yeah, you can only do it when you also recognize your own mm-hmm. political incorrectness. Oh, he's having other characters mm-hmm. call him senile and, you know, insane. Did you notice that quote from Mao, politics is war without bloodshed? Here's your trivia question. Oh, God. <laughs> that same quote opened an episode of a TV show we reviewed on this podcast. Oh, my God. Ugh. <laughs> I hate it when you do this. Um, namaste. No, I have no idea. <laughs> Borgen. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay, here's another. Do you remember not that long ago, we were at the Provincetown International Film Festival, and we went to that wonderful panel with all the authors whose books have been made into movies. Okay, and Casey Sherman, who's from Cape Cod, he wrote The Finest Hours about what was one right. of the biggest Coast Guard rescues ever. Two actors were in The Finest Hours who were in Crisis in Six Scenes. Who? Rachel Brosnahan and John Magaro. Oh. Oh. That played the young engaged couple. Uh, I didn't think she was great. But that was her role. No, but yeah. I also didn't think she was great at her role. You know, she he was like, there. She, I don't know, she could have brought, I think, a little more to it, you know. She looked like Rachel McAdams. She did a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not, as, not as compelling. He but was good. John he was McCarrow. very, yeah, he was mm-hmm. very good. And also a tough role to play because he could have mm-hmm. been ridiculous and yes. he wasn't. Yep. You know, they, he had moments when it, it bordered on, is this ridiculous or not? So I thought it was excellent. It really made it feel like mm-hmm. a stage play. Mm-hmm. If we had seen this as a theatrical production, it would not have surprised Woody me Allen at all. Woody Allen can write. O'Toole, he can. Mm-hmm. And this is the third thing we've done of his in like nine months, but... And you know, the, the, he deserves it. The quirky jazz music was best done thing to in such ten years he's done. Effect. Best thing he's done. It was great to break it up into six little segments. And I'm sure that he also his cost point, you know, he doesn't spend you know, he can do a movie for a reasonable amount of money. Um, I think his cost point to do this was probably good. I'm interested, I would like to ask him why he chose Amazon. I wonder if they're they're the ones who approached him. Well, I don't know that he I think he approaches people. I don't think people approach him. You think? Yeah. So what a week of of viewing. It was wonderful, wasn't it? I enjoyed it as a farce, as a caper, Mm -hmm. as a frothy little thing that did touch on these themes. And well done, Amazon. And I said this a few weeks ago. I think that the, the product you guys are putting out is eclectic and interesting and diverse. And you go, Amazon. God's gonna punish us with this. God's not gonna punish you, you're an atheist. But if I'm wrong, we're in big trouble. Curiosity, how do you pronounce B-I-S-O-N? Bison. It's a Did you notice Woody Allen kept saying bison? Oh, I think that was supposed to be funny. It was funny. <laughs> Quirky little guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>